in six literal days, has the Sabbath day, that seventh literal day, to uh, picture the eternal rest, as well as to picture what you and I are, are meant to live like. We're meant to live resting in the Lord, resting in Him. Uh, that's something that we are going to very much struggle with over the next 31 days uh, uh, ahead of us. We're going to begin with December and all the busyness and the rushing and the buying and the get-togethers, all the everything, right? It's beautiful and it's wonderful, but we rush, 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 and we have got to get to the place as Christians physically, but especially spiritually, where we can uh, sit back and, and to learn to not do a thing, to learn to, to sit still and, and to be still and to even be quiet and to listen to God and to know Him more and deeper. And so we dealt with earlier on in this chapter, God has made all these things. He puts man into the garden. He describes the garden, the garden picturing all these beautiful things leading up to the tabernacle, the temple, to Christ dwelling on the earth, and one day to the eternal tabernacle or the eternal city uh, where we will dwell with the Lord our God forever and forever as we were meant to do in the Garden of Eden. And now the Garden of Eden, though, of course, is going to be a picture of what life is supposed to be like However, this paradise would be lost because of one man's sin, which would thrust the whole of creation and you and I and everyone else who has been born out of uh, or uh, who has been born after him have now been thrust into a sinful nature and a sinful condition and a sin cursed world that is never, ever, ever going to get better until one day God turns it all, uh, balls it all up and makes something brand new. It, it makes it far more glorious and better. And we return back to a a paradise-like state, but without the curse and without, I believe, the potential for another curse. Um, but let's look here tonight. Um, verse number 15 to 17, it tells us this. And the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and the word Adam literally means man, and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now, that sounds pretty good. And here's the one law, right? People say the law didn't come until later on. Well, here's law right here. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, right? Thou shalt not eat of it. That's pretty plain and clear. He says you can eat of every tree, but here's this other tree. Don't eat that tree. Everything else, go for it. Everything else is there for you to enjoy. You don't have to do a thing for it. You just simply enjoy the garden as it is. He says, but there that one tree, thou shalt not eat of it. He says, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now that's important. And I want to hit on that for just a moment before we go any further. Every time that God gives us a law like a truly good father, he does not just say, because I said so. He gives the reason. The reason that he says, do not disobey this law is because you will die. These are literally dire consequences of disobeying God. This is why we see that from the very beginning, from the very first sin, death is alluded to, uh, separation is alluded to, the, the fact that uh, that is what sin does, that it is lawlessness, it breaks God's law, it disobeys uh, His commands, it goes against His will, it goes against uh, the very image of which we were created to, to live in. And so we see that the severity and the depth of sin and the potential for the depravity of man to, to come upon the scene and to really ruin everything. What ruins our life and what ruins truly all of creation, all the world, is disobeying God. Everything goes good until we disobey God. Now, you think about this, probably the most miserable times in your life, 
probably have been times in your life where you were not so close to the Lord. There were probably times in your life where you've been disobedient or wayward or against God or, um, or, or in some form of rebellion. You think even if uh, that may not be the case, even before you were saved, certainly that would be the most miserable time. Why? Because you uh, did not really see the misery that you were in until after you were saved. And you look back and go, how in the world did I live without Christ? And now once we've seen and we've tasted of the tree of life, if you will, we go, how in the world could we taste of this other one that disobeys God? Now, I want to come to verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, in our English translation here, it's a little difficult to try to figure out what exactly is Adam's purpose in this garden. If we were to look at it surface level, we would go, well, Adam's a gardener, right? Adam is much more than a gardener here. Right? He, he's got no... Look, this is the perfect Garden of Eden. Are there weeds yet? No. Are there thorns and thistles yet? No. When do those come in? They're going to come in. But they're going to come in in uh, chapter 3, um, verse 22. Right? And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he drives him out of the garden. Uh, you back up a, a few verses and you see that he's going to have the thorns and the thistles in verse 18. It shall bring forth and thou shalt eat uh, the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face. Thou shalt eat bread till thou return into the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust. Thou art and dust thou shalt return. So these things have not happened yet. That, that's uh, alluding to the fall. But here, what does it mean here? Really, this is going to be seen as the priesthood of Adam. Adam is called here and placed in the garden to be the priest of the garden. We're going to see a little bit more about what this all means, but the garden is uh, a picture of the perfect presence and fellowship with God. Uh, can you imagine this? Now, there's many times we, we hear preached and taught, you know, that, that every day God and Adam met and walked in the cool of the day, and it's a kind of pictured or alluded to over in chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It tends to make us believe at least that there is fellowship there. And why would there not be fellowship there? Because there is no sin. What does sin do? It takes away our fellowship. Now, you and I who are saved, we still sin, don't we? Yes. It may not make us lose our salvation, but it certainly can have us lose our fellowship. And so what happens here that we're about to see in just a, a short few verses is that sin is going to come in and not just bring about a, a break in the fellowship, but it's going to ruin everything that the garden was meant to be. And so man does not have to work the ground until after the fall. And the idea to dress it and keep it gives us this idea to dress the garden, to keep the garden, meaning that, we're, that Adam's going around with some hedge clippers and a, and a weed whacker and a lawnmower trying to make this place look good like it's a golf course. Now, this is far more beautiful than Augusta National Golf Course, right? Now, this is far more beautiful than, than anything that you and I can try to, to make, uh, any, any better, better than any garden we can try to to, to keep or cultivate. This is the garden of God that is literally the, the thing that He has created and formed and fashioned and has placed man into, and He's made that garden specifically for who? For man. Remember, as we talked about in Genesis 1, after every single day that He said it was good, it was alluding not just to the fact that it was a good thing that He made, but it was good because it was going to be used for the peak of creation, which is mankind who is going to be made and the only thing made in the image of God. And it's that image bearer who's going to be placed into this garden to keep that image of the garden. Not to make it look pretty. It can't be any more pretty. 
right? It could not be, there's nothing that Adam can do to add to the beauty of the Garden of Eden. There's nothing that Adam can do to make the garden any better. However, there is something that Adam can do to make the garden worse. And what is that? That is to eat of the tree that he's told, thou shalt not eat of it. Because in the moment that Adam does, in the moment that Adam dies, if you will, everything that is perfect and in its place begins to die as well. This is why no matter what any uh, person would say, there is no reversing and making the earth somehow get better. Now, you can believe if you want to. And to be quite honest, I don't really care if you believe in global warming, global cooling. I, I don't care what you believe about that. What I do know is this. From the very beginning of sin in this world, God says it's going to get worse. And, and then God also says, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. You know what that means? The old is going to pass away and all things will be made new. Now, when we look at the word new in the book of Revelation and throughout the scripture, it is not talking, I, I don't believe it's just a, a remade, patched up earth. I believe he's going to make it brand new. Now, I might be wrong, and that's okay. I do know this, you and I in Christ, we're going to get to be there. That's the whole point. It's going to be new because it's going to be a new creation, much like you and I, the picture spiritually of the new birth, where we have passed from death into life, where we go from being dead in our sins and trespasses to being alive in Christ, where we go from darkness to, to light, and, and where we go from an old nature to a new nature, a new hunger, a new desire, where we're new creations in Christ. Now, to dress and to keep it, really what this word or phrase here means in the Hebrew, it is not as our English minds think to dress or to keep the garden as in the, the clippers and everything else. What it truly means and gives us the idea of is to worship and obey in his presence. It is to be able to worship and obey God in the, in the perfect condition in which God has placed him in. Adam does not know sin at this point, right? He, he still has no clothes on. He's still naked. He just don't know he's naked. Right? He's not full of sin yet. The world is not decaying. There are no thorns. There are no thistles. There, are, uh, nothing, there is nothing that Adam needs to go and, oh, oh, you know, man, the garden's looking rough today. I've got to go vacuum or, or, or sweep or take care of it. No, that's not the case at all. It is a perfect place made by a perfect God who has a perfect fellowship with his creation as it was meant to be. You and I truly cannot fully fathom what life in the garden was like. Now, you and I ask questions, how long did Adam live like this? I don't know. I, I tend to not think that it took long for sin to happen. Uh, however, however long he's in there, I cannot imagine the blissfulness of which it was. He didn't have to work for anything. He got to enjoy God's presence perfectly. If it is the case, he gets to walk and have fellowship with God. Can you imagine that? A, a few short days ago, you weren't even existence then you wake up after God has formed, fashioned you, and breathed the breath of life into you, and now you get to walk and talk with him, and he's going to use you to name some animals and to be able to keep this place, and you get to worship him, you get to know him, you get to walk and talk with him. Right? Those are all the same things that we talk about how good heaven's going to be. Why? Because the garden is picturing the eternity of which you and I were ultimately meant for. You and I on this earth, we know it is about this long, right? If we could look at, at eternity, it would be from, from that wall to that wall, and you and I are about right, right there. Right? That's our life. That's it. As a matter of fact, you could even say that that's the whole history of the universe so far. That's it, as far as it goes. And, and, and this whole grand scheme. 
that we can't fathom, but yet from the very beginning, it is picturing the fact that what the state of Adam is in the garden is what you and I are going to be going to that are in Christ. That is picturing that this is what it was meant to be like. Now, the garden and the tabernacle are very important. The tabernacle is going to be, though, a temporary place, much like the garden will be. The garden, as God knew, though, would be tainted with sin that would come through Adam's disobedience, and his disobedience would bring about death and sin, and those two things would then be passed upon every single man, woman, and child who would ever come into this world, uh, sinfulness and death. Uh, But uh, as the garden would be temporary, the tabernacle would be as well. But the tabernacle was an important place, especially for the people of Israel. They have just come out of the Exodus. They have been come out of Egypt. They are going on their way to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, God does a couple of things. One, he goes before them. He makes the way, prepares the way. Uh, but as well, he goes in the midst of them. He gives them the, uh, the, the cloud at day, the pillar of fire by night, showing his uh, absolute power and his presence and his promise that he will never leave or forsake his people and that he's going to take them to that promised land of which he had promised Abraham some 400 years before. And so he's fulfilling his, his covenant of which he had made. He is fulfilling the promises of his character and all of who he is. But in the middle of all this, he tells them, I want you to build a tabernacle and I want you to build it this way. And all of these specific, specificnesses, right? Yeah, yeah. And all these specific ways, this is how you're going to make the tabernacle. This is who's going to be able to go in and out. This is what's going to be done there. This is what I'm going to do there. And and what's going to happen is as you read the Old Testament specifically, as they are using the tabernacle, that temporary place, is that it literally means a a dwelling place. It is a place where God meets with his people. This, as the garden here, the garden of God, is the place where God meets with his creation. Now, who is representing God's creation? The image bearer, Adam. The one and the only one, the only thing made a living soul, made in the image and likeness of God. And so as one points to the other here, the the one who could dress and keep the tabernacle was the priest. And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. So what do we find is Adam here. Adam is the only one on the earth at this point. He's, He's there and guess what? He gets to literally walk and be in the presence of God daily. He is going in much like the priest in the Old Testament who went not on just for his own behalf, but on behalf of the people. That's something that you and I forget because we're not Jews, right? So it's hard to understand a lot of this Old Testament stuff, the way it worked and operated, because we don't think that way, but they did. So we've got to understand the historical context of what they're doing. The, The priest would go into the tabernacle uh, or the temple, not just for his own sin, but for the sins of the people. We think specifically on the Day of Atonement, what would happen, right? The, the, only the high priest and the way in which everything was done and ordered and operated, that he was going as a substitute for everyone else. He was going because he was the only one that could go, and he had to go a certain way. As a matter of fact, it was so serious that they would even uh, tie the rope around him, so that way if he did get struck down because he was coming uh, uh, improperly or impurely that he would have his dead body drop and they could drag him on out of there, right? And we'll, we'll try this again with somebody else, right? And, and this is what would happen. And, and so 
We see the severity of God's presence, but we also see the beauty of God's presence. And Adam is able to enjoy this perfectly and completely. Adam is acting as a priest to God to keep the garden from sin and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, the priests were not just involved in giving sacrifice, but in that sacrifice, what is the real meaning? It is not just for forgiveness of sins, but it is to offer praise to God. So what is Adam doing when he is commanded to keep and to dress the garden? Well, it's not to, to trim the bushes and the, to get rid of the weeds because there are, are no need for that. But his job, rather, is to keep the garden from sin. And is to dress it and to keep it. He is to dress it and to keep it in the state of which it should be in. Which is a place where God's people, God's creation, can perfectly dwell with their maker. That's what heaven truly is. You understand that tonight? Heaven is truly where you and I get to go to the place where God is, where we will no longer be separated physically, we will no longer be separated spiritually, but we will be with our Creator as we were always meant to be. And the only way that you and I will ever get there is through the blood of Jesus Christ. But when we look at Adam here, he's enjoying it as it's meant to be, but he's commanded to keep it that way. He literally has one job to do, and that is simply to obey God. See, the priest would be struck down dead if he came improperly. The priest would be struck down dead if he were to go into the Holy of Holies and was not prepared, if he was not cleansed, if he was not righteous or faithful before God. Adam, here in the same sense, if he has sinned, then what happens? That will bring about impurity. It will bring about unrighteousness. It will bring about separation. So Adam here, in, in a sense, is the only one that enters into the Holy of Holies daily as long as he is clean before God. And this is important because God will only have purity in his presence. And this is important because later on when the tabernacle does come and the temple does come, what happens is they have to keep it pure. There was even such a severity that if you remember when David was getting the, the ark back, or what happens? Right? It starts to slip, God tries to catch it, and strikes him down dead. Why? Because God took this incredibly seriously. And so you and I can never take the presence of God too seriously. And I believe that the mistake that Adam makes, perhaps, in chapter 3, is that he forgets the beauty of God's presence. There he had been for however long he had been, enjoying God's presence perfectly and completely, and there was nothing else that could offer greater satisfaction than knowing and following and walking with God in the garden. And yet, the same tree that he had walked by on that day calls to him. And instead of hearing the call of God daily and responding to that, he responds to the call of that tree that he was simply just to say no to. And furthermore, Adam here is, is a picture of, of Christ. He, he pictures the, and prepares us for the second Adam, as 1 Corinthians calls him. The, the second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Jesus would succeed in all the aspects of which Adam failed. Now look at this. Adam was to be prophet, priest, and king over this world at this point. First of all, in chapter 1, God had given him dominion. What is dominion? 
Dominion means to rule, to have authority. And so the, the, literally the, the creation, God has said, I'm placing you in the garden. Animals are yours to enjoy and to name the, the fruit of the trees. Enjoy it, except for that one. This is yours. Have dominion, right? It is to, to act as the, the king, if you will. It is the theocratic kingdom of God where God is ruling through Adam in his creation on this earth. Adam is to be the, the ruler and, and to have dominion over the creation, which he would until, until he sins. Then what happens? It's as if the creation that he was meant to have dominion over turns against him. The, the, the day he sins, instead of being able to just to walk around in the perfect garden, hey, that fruit looks good. I'm going to eat that today. Right? Oh, man, that was sweet. That was delicious. Now, we're told in chapter 3, after all this, and he gets kicked out of the garden, he's got to start shoveling and planting seeds and watering and dealing with the thorns and the thistles and the, the difficulties that it takes to bring about a, a crop from the ground. Now, I'm not one who has ever kept a garden, right? The only thing I've ever grown is pumpkins, and that was on accident. Okay. We just let them rot in the, in the yard, and then next fall we had a couple of pumpkins, and, and then those rotted too. <laughs> so, you know, but I do know this, to get the crop, it takes some hard work, right? No one that I know that has a garden, even a small garden, let alone a big garden, says, you know how easy it is to keep a garden? Everybody ought to do it. They, half the people that I know that keep a garden say, is last year I'm doing it and I ain't doing it no more, right? It's hard work. It's not easy, right? But you know, it's worth it. There is, a, there is a fruit, there is a crop, but what Adam is going to have to do, he's going to eventually going to have to start working hard these things by the sweat of his brow. It's showing the intensity and the difficultness as the sun that used to be perfect in the garden is now beating down on his brow and beating down on his back and causing him to sweat and Everything's not going right. He's uh, waiting for the, the crop to crow. And all of these things throughout all of his days, the same way that we uh, live today. Thank God for food lion, right? But Adam, though, then was not only to be the king of Eden, but he was to be the prophet of Eden. We talked about what it means to be a prophet is not just to call out what the future is going to look like. Now, granted, the Garden of Eden in Adam's life is calling out what the future is going to look like. Now, chapter 2 is pointing to chapter 3. It's, it's going, look, here's a perfect place in chapter 2 with a perfect man and a perfect God and perfect fellowship and perfect obedience and everything. It's, it's perfect. It's great. There's no curse. But it's pointing and going, but something's about to happen, right? And it's not good. Chapter 3 then comes and points to the fact that there's going to be judgment coming and that there's going to be a continued state of the fall and a continued state of sin and that's going to affect everything until God fulfills His promises that He's been saying since Genesis 1.1, that if there's a beginning, there will be an end, which will bring about a new beginning for a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. Now, Adam, to be the prophet, though, what it means to prophesy really is to, to preach. You would say, well, who in the world is, is Adam preaching to? One, as every preacher must, he has to preach to his own heart. Every day, however long, if Adam is even just in the garden for a day before he sins, and I, to be honest, don't know, in Really, if it mattered, God would have put it here somewhere in chapter 2 or 3. But he doesn't. One day you might ask him, but I don't think you'll care then anyways. But when we look at this, Adam, who is he preaching to? Like every single one of us preachers, he has to preach to his own heart every day that he wakes up going, God is good, God is faithful. Look, look at what God has done. God has placed me in this. You want to talk about me, you want to count your blessings. He literally can look around and his home is perfect. 
His relationship with God is perfect. Everything is, is great. And he's able to praise God for it. And, and he's able to preach that to his heart. And what else does he have to preach to his heart? Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Lest thou eat it, you will die. Lest you eat it, you'll die. You eat that tree today, Adam, you're going to die. I don't know at this point that Adam knows what die means, but I know he probably knows it's not good. I, he knows yesterday I didn't die, so I, I don't want to do that today, right? Or, or however long he's been in. He, he knows this. Death is not good because that tree means if I eat of it that I've disobeyed God because God just simply said, enjoy the rest of this. Now, spiritually, we, we look at this, we often hear preachers preach, and there's so many of the world that, that would say, all that preachers and church care about is telling us a list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and all this stuff and just takes all the fun and everything else. Well, that's a bunch of hogwash. Look at the garden, right? It, God has literally given Adam everything except for one thing. Everything else is his. Everything else is for his enjoyment. Everything else is for him to, to participate in. And yet Adam is going to be able to look and go, well, how come I don't get that one thing? You see, this shows what, how quickly you and I are to forget all that God has given, all that God has promised. And we look at the one thing that God says no to. And we say, you know, if God really loved me, or if God was so nice, if God was so generous, if God was so kind, how come that one thing, this is what is going to get man in trouble throughout all of, eternity, throughout all of human history. But Adam was also to be the prophet, not just to his own heart, but to give the message of obedience to his wife. He was going to be the one to preach this to Eve. He wakes up, and he will see this later on in this chapter, right? Here in a couple weeks, when we get to this, and when we're going to see, he wakes up, we have marriage, and it's a perfect marriage for a little while. <laughs> Their honeymoon phase is in the garden. You can't ask for better than that, right? The honeymoon is in the best place on earth, and then sin is going to ruin not just creation, not just the relationship to God, but even the relationship to one another. It's there in that moment that every relationship becomes skewed as image bearers, that we begin to question things, we begin to respond improperly and correctly in and, and all of these things, but it is going to be Adam's job to preach, hey Eve, um, we're you know a thing now. <laughs> And God told me that this is ours, and it's beautiful, isn't it, right? But guess what? See that tree over there? That's the only thing we can't eat. So every day that we wake up, let's remind ourselves, don't eat that one. Everything else, it's enjoy, right? It's for us. He's a preacher. Eve marries a pastor, right? Except Adam would be, a, would be like the rest of us. He would be very sinful. He would not practice every day like what he preaches, he preaches to his heart. He preaches to his wife. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat that tree. And one day they eat the tree. But then Adam was also to be the priest. To the, the priests of the day in Israel were the ones who were the worship leaders. They were the ones who, now when you and I think of worship leader, mind you, we think of song leader, all right? S song leader does not equate worship leader. Truly the worship leader was the, the, of the day was, was the priest. They led in the worship sacrifice uh, the reading of the law, the interpretation of the law. And they, they read the scripture. They planned the services. They planned the holidays, right? They, they had the whole nine yards, right? They led the people in worship. And I would make the argument biblically today that, that, that pastors are, are called to be the worship leaders, 
right? If my heart's not right, how can I expect yours to be? Uh, if I'm not leading and preaching in the Word and teaching in the Word and, and making sure that the songs that are sung or making sure that the ministries that are done are not God-honoring, glorifying, and Christ-centered and gospel-centered and gospel-focused and all these things, then I'm not leading you to worship, right? We're, we're leading to song, but, but not to worship. And there's, there is a difference. And so Adam, as the priest, is called simply to trust and obey God and, and to offer worship to God and to give Him glory all of his days, and it would certainly be easy, you would think, to be in his presence and to give him glory. But day in and day out, it would seem that it would become more and more tempting for Adam to disobey, which one day he, he ultimately would. Adam fails to be the good king of Eden. He would not keep the dominion. As a matter of fact, what would happen is the dominion would be flip-flopped. That which he was supposed to rule over would then take rule over him. He then also failed as the prophet. Perhaps one day he didn't preach it to his own heart or preach it to his wife. And what happens is they both fall deeply into sin. He also failed as the priest. He failed to continue and to lead his wife in worship. He failed to continue to lead himself in worship. He failed to keep the place that was meant to be the place of ultimate worship and glory of God to keep it that way because of his sinfulness and his disobedience. And by the way, his willful sinfulness and willful disobedience. But Christ is the better Adam. Christ, the second Adam, is the great king. He is, matter of fact, king of kings, lord of lords, and there is none like him. He is a prophet, the greatest prophet that there ever was. Not just a preacher, but the best preacher, the preacher of preachers. He, he is the, the word of God himself. He is both the proclaimer of the message and he is the message. You don't get gooder than that. And then Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also the best priest that there ever is. Why? Because Jesus is not just leading us to worship. He is not just offering sacrifice. But once more, he is the sacrifice. And only he alone can be the ultimate sacrifice once he has suffered for sins. Not like the high priest who had to go in year after year after year after year and for the Day of Atonement. There was one great Day of Atonement. It was the day of which Christ died on a hill called Calvary where He bled for your sins and mine, where He literally died a death that you and I deserved, where He had become sin itself. He would be laid into a grave and raised again victorious that third day to offer eternal life, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the prophets, to fulfill the Scriptures, to fulfill the promises, to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill all of which God had, had promised from the very beginning, from the very first sin, that there would be one who would come long uh, later, who would be the Savior, who would be the Redeemer, who would be the one to redeem man from their own plight of which they had put themselves into. You know who caused man to sin? Man. You know who keeps man in our state? It's man. We continuously seek sin and, and, and go after sin, but what God does is He puts on flesh and He dies for us so that that which is temporary can then one day live eternally. And we would have this eternal life. I want to give you a few verses tonight to show us, as, uh, to, to show us Christ, the second Adam. Uh, first of all, Romans chapter 5 declares it, the whole chapter, uh, but specifically 12, verse 12 down uh, through, through 21. Uh, I'm going to read it quickly just for sake of time. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world. Who's that? Adam. And death by sin. So death passed upon all men. Who's that? Us. For that all have sinned 
Who's that? Oh, us. Everybody. For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. How do we know Adam was a picture of Christ? It just said so, right? That's what the Scripture teaches. He says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, in case you're wondering, hath abounded unto many. We see it continues on. One brings sin. One brings death. One brings destruction. One brings separation. And that's Adam. But there's one who comes, who fulfills the promises, and that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Now turn with me over just a few more pages to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, just for sake of time, I want me to read this whole passage, but verses, really, you can go all the way through the whole chapter, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, chapter 15 is really the whole, it is, it is the gospel message. It is the good news from start to finish. It literally begins that way. Right, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news which I preach unto you, that which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye are also saved. And he says, this is the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And then it says all that he's been seen by and how important the resurrection is and the proof that it shows God is satisfied with his son's action and, and his deeds for us and his substitutionary atoning death that you and I who are unrighteous may be declared righteous uh, by simply trusting in, in Jesus. And he says this in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but only in Christ. Now you fast forward over to verse uh, 44, and, and he begins to discuss uh, a natural body versus a spiritual one and, and, and what all this looks like. He says in verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And, and as is the heavenly, such are also they that are heavenly. Uh, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit uh, incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. With the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall he excuse me, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Adam, we're losers. We're defeated. We are totally uh, abandoned. We are totally just without hope. But guess what? With Christ, we're, we're winners. We're victors. We're conquerors. Not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of who Christ is and what He has done for us. And we have that promise of that future hope of what uh, lies ahead for us. Now, as we go back to Genesis uh, 2 here, Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Do you all know what thou shalt not eat of it means? 
Don't, right, don't eat it. That's it. Y'all got it. What do y'all need me here for, right? Don't eat it. That's it. That's as simple as that. Don't eat it. Right? You, you can picture this, right, just to help us out a little bit. And it, it is this sort of mentality we, we could see. I don't know what that fruit tasted like. I have no idea what kind of fruit it looked like. I don't know the color. don't know how sweet or sour or bitter it might have been. I do know this. It, it, disobeying God was a terrible fruit. Disobeying God would be the lead to the fruit of, of sin and disobedience and, and destruction and all these things. You and I, when we're young, mom might make some, some cookies, right? And she makes them hot and fresh. They're ooey-gooey and delicious, and you just want them. You want them not later. You want them right now. And what does mom say? Don't eat them! <laughs> Don't touch them! <laughs> right? She, they're, they're cooling, right? They're on the cooling rack, and that's when you really want them because they're still kind of warm and, and right? That's, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Don't tell me y'all like cold, crunchy cookies, okay? All right, I hope not. Now, I'll take a cold, crunchy cookie of no, over no cookie, okay? But the, the warm, ooey-gooey deliciousness of a, of a hot, fresh cookie out the oven. It's starting to cool, and then what happens, right? We're told don't eat it. But we want to eat it. But if we eat that cookie, even as good as it might taste, it is disobedience. You and I will be much more blessed if we listen to the rules. Because what has happened and what I had learned the hard way at times is you eat that cookie when you're not supposed to eat that cookie, then that might mean you don't get no more cookies, right? At least not that night. But I have learned this, that if you listen, and instead of getting that one cookie, I like it too. <laughs> there is a blessing in obedience, but there is a curse and disobedience. And now when we look at this, uh, section uh, letter B here, trust and obey. This is our purpose. This is our goal. If we boil all of man's responsibility down to what you and I are responsible before God to do, trust. You know what trust? Another word for that? Faith. Belief. Trust and obey. You will not obey God unless you first trust God. You will not obey His words or obey what He commands unless you first have faith that He is good, that He has authority, that you are under His authority, and that what He says is true and right. And by the way, whether regardless of whatever you think about any of those things, He is good, He is just, He is right, He is uh, the only authority that there is, and whatever He says goes. Period. There is there's no questioning. Well, well, God, let me bargain with you here, right? There's none of that. There's no bargain with God. What God says, it's settled. It's sealed. It's a done deal. So when God says, every tree is yours, but you eat that tree, you're going to die. That means if you eat that tree, you're going to die. This is the command to trust and obey to Adam and to all people. And specifically to those who believe God, to those who are the household of faith. Now, over in Deuteronomy, and you can just stay, stay there. And just I'll turn there for you so you don't have to, okay? I'm really nice tonight. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 30 tonight tells us this over in verse number 15. Here, this is, Deuteronomy, by the way, is, is really three big sermons from Moses. He's prepping and, and he's, he's fixing to die, right? He knows they're getting ready to go off into the promised land. And he's got one last shot to preach to him. And what he's going to do is not a new message, but rather going, hey, y'all remember the word of God that God gave to us? Obey it. Trust in him. 
Obey him. That's it. That's literally the message of every preacher from, uh, from Moses all the way through. Trust and obey God. He says this, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil, and that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord God and Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. Now, there's an awful lot there that points right back to what God had just told Adam in chapter 1 and 2, isn't it? What did God tell Adam to do? Possess the land and be fruitful and multiply. Now, what does Moses say here that God told them to do? Possess the land and live in it and multiply and to keep the judgments and statutes. It's the same command that God had given to Adam. Live in the land. Live in the garden. Keep it. Trust and obey. Right? And, and to be fruitful and to multiply. The commands are the same. He says, verse 17 though, much like with Adam, but if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, or as we might put it, die, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go possess it. What happens to Adam? Same as this promise is given here. The moment he consumes, the moment really that he consumes not even just some fruit from a tree, but the moment that he consumes disobedience instead of faithfulness, he then loses the right to the land. His days then become short in the land because it ain't but a short little while later, after that sin, after a quick conversation and some judgment pronounced and the promise given of the coming Messiah, that God says, all right, uh, you've got to go. And you're not coming back in here. It is severe. And we see the issue that Israel, of course, would face throughout their history, that they would be told the same as Adam. Trust and obey. Live in the land. Multiply in the land. And you'll enjoy the land. And guess what Adam does not do? He does not get to enjoy the garden the way he was meant to enjoy the garden because he does not trust and obey. He then, therefore, does not get to live in the land because of that disobedience. And therefore, his multiplication would happen outside of the garden. And then he says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. You see, the importance of Adam being prophet, priest, and king over Eden is this, not just for his own soul, but for his future children. His disobedience is going to make his children be disobedient little wretches that just a, a chapter away that we go from one sin of just eating fruit we weren't supposed to eat to I'm going to go kill my brother. We see how quickly sin passes. Sin goes from the dad who goes, yeah, back in my day I ate some fruit I wasn't supposed to. I was, a, I was a wild one, right? I was a rebel. And he was a rebel. And then it goes to his son who murders his brother, kills him, slaughters him, slays him out of a hate-filled heart. The importance here, much like Moses had just told them, is he says, your trusting of God, your faithfulness in God, your obedience to God is not just about you, but for your children and your children's children and your children's 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 children. It is not that you would have this grand legacy of being so good or so faithful, but rather so that way you teach them what it means to live good and to live faithful lives. If your legacy looks like 
that you didn't teach those things, then that's not much of a legacy. And many of us can say that we taught kids or grandkids how to ride a bicycle or throw a ball or do many great things that might be great memories, but if we don't teach them Christ, then we've taught them nothing. And Adam is going to fail not just as prophet, priest, and king of the garden, but he fails as a husband by letting his wife fall into sin. He fails as a father by having his own son kill his other own son. I can't imagine living for 900 years with the guilt that this man had. The great things for you and I, though, points to the fact that there is Christ. And the longer that we have to live with the guilt and the sin and the shame. God gives Adam the freedom to eat of the fruit that God has provided. But God also gives Adam the freedom to eat of that which he has forbidden. You and I can try to go, why did he even put the tree there? Why did he even let Satan fall? Why did he even let Satan in the garden to go tempt Eve? Anybody ever ask any of those questions? Me too. If I can answer that in any way, the truth is this. We don't have a black and white answer that says for this specific reason, but I do know this. If you keep reading from here all the way to your concordance, <laughs> what you're going to find is that everything that God did and allowed would ultimately be to redeem a people back unto himself, to bring them to the place of which they were always meant to be, to live not just by faith, but to live by sight in the presence of their Savior, in the presence of their Creator, perfectly in His image forever and forever and forever. Why all these things happen, I do not know, but I do know that God is good in all of these things. That God allows Adam this opportunity. The same that He allows you and I the opportunity every day that we live to choose the good, to choose to live in the land, to choose to trust and obey Him. Disobedience is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Sin brings death. Death is separation. Separation shows us a need of redemption. Our need of redemption shows us then the promised Savior, which is grace. So you want to know the real everything, I guess? This is one long history and telling of the grace of God. From the very first words in Genesis 1-1 to the very last words in Revelation, all of it, every action, every deed, every word is of the grace of God. I would say this tonight as we're about to close. If we desire to enjoy the good of the land, if you will, we must obey God alone, by faith alone. Faith obeys God. If we do not obey, there is death, isn't it? Matter of fact, that's how you and I are born. We're born disobedient. We're born headed for death and separation, destruction. This is why the beautiful picture of Christ's coming is so wonderful. It shows that just because things are no longer the way that they were supposed to be, that one day they will be in Christ Jesus. We see here that this whole chapter, this whole account, and everything that's about to transpire alludes to the coming fall, the coming judgment, but 
as well the coming Messiah, to restore mankind's fellowship with God through His perfect obedience. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this. Over verse number 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This whole book and this whole account in Genesis points to this same humble, lowly, suffering servant, promised Messiah who has come to take away our sins, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father to forever and forever receive the glory and honor of which He deserves for His goodness, His kindness, and His grace that has been shown at Calvary in that empty tomb. Tonight, if you struggle with your purpose, and by the way, we always do in our flesh, we go through different seasons and times in our life where we go, well, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do now? Right? I'm too old for this. I'm too young for that. I'm too in the middle for one or the other. Why am I here? You want to know why you're here? To trust and obey. For there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus. To trust and obey. Your purpose and my purpose is to trust and obey because in our faithfulness and obedience to God, we experience His grace in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the King of kings, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king is glorified forever and forever. That is our goal and purpose tonight. May we carry that in our hearts. May each day that we wake up, we preach it to ourselves. Today is not for me. Today is not about me. Today that I would put my faith in Christ, that I would obey Christ so that I may glorify Christ. And in all of those things, I will experience the grace that is found only in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time and we thank You for this night. Grateful for Your Word. Lord, there is so many wonderful truths and things that You've given to us in Your Scripture, Lord. Not just so that we would have full heads, but God, so that we would have full hearts. Help us tonight to be full of faith, to trust You, to obey You, to not do so grudgingly or, or half-heartedly as we so often do, but to do so trusting and obeying you, knowing that we are experiencing your grace and goodness and kindness in our life. So, God, that we might glorify you both now and all throughout eternity. Well, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for this time once more. Go with us. Keep us safe and use us as you only can. Lord, we uh, ask for safety and we ask, God, that you would prepare our hearts as well for this upcoming season and for the things that you're going to continue to do and our own lives, and the life of your church. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Y'all have a great night, and y'all be safe out there.